Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. My guest today, Allie Franklin, Austin's sister, has taken a career path of death of grief counseling that started at age four when her only sibling died of a brain tumor. Please join us on our show today, Am I Still a Sister? Grief Through the Life Cycle. Allie, welcome to Healing the Grieving Heart. Thank you, Gloria. It's great to have you on the show today. Well, you're a really busy woman, and I want to talk to you about some of the things that you do. Um, you're a manager of Wicks and Wings, a Seattle-based children's grief support center, and a co-author of Footsteps Through Grief, The Other Side of Grief, Finding Your Way Through Grief, The Dying and Brief Teenager, and Dear Parents. She is a, the featured children's grief expert in the, now how do you say that, Paraclete video? Mm-hmm. Paraclete. Paraclete, When a Loved One Dies, Walking Through Grief as a Teenager. She's a, Allie's a former captain in the Air Force, and she was a keynote speaker at both the 2001 World Gatherings on Bereavement and the 2005 World Gathering on Bereavement. And uh, I was very lucky to hear Allie this year at the World Gathering. She's a wonderful, wonderful speaker and a great person, and I'm very excited to have her on the show. Well, Allie, tell me a little something about what is um, Wicks and Wings? Have you Sure. Um, Wicks and Wings. Wicks is a program for widowed folks. Ah. And WINGS is the part that serves the children and the teens Um, because what we found out is that widowed people, unfortunately, um, come in all ages and have younger children and teenagers who are needing support. And so I have the privilege of of having designed a program that serves the kids and the teens who have had the death of any loved one or friend, and then their parents come and get support at the same time. That's great. So you're in Seattle? Yes. And now do you have a web page or something that people can go to? Uh, would people who are not, in, well, people for in the Seattle area, and then uh, I know, uh, do you have your books and things on there for people who are out of that area? Um, well, we, the books are carried through a couple of different companies. Um, our website wouldn't have the books on them. But for the support group, our website is www.widowedinformation.org. Great. And then there is a logo that is bird wings, and you click on that, and it takes you into wings. Ah, and so they can read about the teen part that you've designed. Right, and the teen part's really neat because it's a mentor program, and it helps teens not only learn about their own grief, but also learn how they can help younger children who are grieving, and it becomes the legacy of their grief and of their coping. Oh, what a great thing because I know one of the things I like to talk about on this show is you're not ready to do it right away, but when you get through the shock and denial and and those kinds of issues, you're ready to move on a bit. Uh, One of the things that really helps you move on is service and mentoring to others, isn't it? Absolutely, and our teens, excuse me, our teens love it because sometimes they think they've they've got this all handled, Mm -hmm. and then they're working with the younger kids and doing an activity that might have been too young for them. But as the helper, and all of a sudden it touches on something that they hadn't really dealt with yet. Mm-hmm. And so we have a debrief time for the teens after they work with the younger kids. And they just love that time because they say, wow, that really surprised me. 
Yeah, it's it's amazing with loss how it sneaks up on you, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. a smell or a sound or a season or maybe having somebody graduate from high school or a wedding or and years later. Absolutely. Those um, milestone events can really come by surprise because if we're looking at the clock and, and we've bought into this old adage that time heals all wounds, well, I, time does nothing but pass. It's the grief work that heals. And so when you look at the calendar and say, oh, well, it's been so many years, I should be done by now. We have our own internal time clocks. And then a graduation comes up, and there's a hole. And we say, this person would have been here. Right. And all of a sudden it comes back, and it's it's as fresh and as new as if it happened yesterday. And the thing is, the pain doesn't last as long as if it was fresh and new, but it sure is as sharp. Yeah, it's kind of like touching a live wire for a minute. It is. And it, <laughs> if, and you've really ever, if you've ever uh, been on a farm where they have those electric fences to keep the cows in, it's kind of like touching one of those real quick. Exactly, and it really so. catches you by surprise, and you say, oh, no, Whoa. it's been this number of years. I shouldn't be going through this. And so we just have to let go of, of that internal time clock that says I should be doing it at this rate right? and kind of go with the pain at the moment and go with the flow. I'm just newly on the board of the Compassionate Friends, and uh, we had a little, um, we were getting ready for the national conference, which will be, by the way, in Dearborn, Michigan in July, um, the weekend of July 16th. hope uh, our listeners will make an effort to come. It's going to be a great conference. But I was uh, there in Dearborn. We were looking at the conference center, and uh, one of the things that the board members do is get together and because um, we do dedicate our work to uh, our children that have died or grandchildren or siblings, and we go around in a circle and people tell about their loss. <clears throat> well, for me, it's been 22 years, and it was it surprised me because I think I was the emotion, most emotional one in the group, and by far um, uh, it's been longer for me. So it, was, it really surprised me that um, I became so emotional about it. But in a way, it was interesting because... Um, I was like, wow, where did that come from? And I had uh, some of the other board members come up and say to me how great it was to hear that after 22 years you really don't lose touch. Absolutely, that that we don't have to say goodbye and close the book on, on our loved ones. They're with us through our lifetime. Yeah, because one of the big fears is that people will forget, right? Absolutely, and, you know, maybe I'll forget the sound of his voice or I'll forget the way it felt to to have him in my life. And and you don't forget those things. In a moment of panic, you might think that you've forgotten, but if I ask you the color of of your child's eyes, you would know. Mm -hmm. Green. (laughs) (laughs) And my brother's eyes were blue. (laughs) Exactly. And And when my daughter was born, I looked into her eyes, and they are his eyes. Uh. And all of a sudden, you know, 25 years of, of... coping just melted away and there were tears streaming down my face and I was thrilled to have my daughter and at that moment I felt very connected with my brother as well. Yeah, could you talk about him a little bit and uh, your life and uh, he was four, um, I mean, excuse me, you were four when Austin uh, died? Right, well I started out as an only child and my parents announced this wonderful news that we were having another baby, which they didn't consult me on so I wasn't all that pleased. (laughs) And um, when he was born... He had a cleft lip, which was no big deal, but um, ended up probably being a sign to us that maybe something more would be wrong because by the time he was three months old, he wasn't growing correctly. He was getting smaller instead of getting bigger. And you were four at this time? And I was four when he Mm -hmm. was born. But by then I had bought into this whole idea of being a big sister, and somehow my mom had made it seem like a really neat thing. Right. So I was into that. That was my baby. 
And when he started getting sick and having to go to the doctor, I wanted to know everything that was going on. Well, the words were too big for even my mom to say, let alone me. And eventually I ended up having to go live with an aunt and uncle um, because they were fighting my brother's cancer and, and fighting for his life. And, and he had a rare type of cancer, didn't he, that they went all did. over to try to find out about? And it really took about half of his life to figure out what was wrong. And that was very traumatic for my family because they knew very clearly that something was wrong but kept having to almost prove themselves to the medical community about saying, no, we're not doing this to him. This is something that's inside of him that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And so for my family, it was almost a relief when they found out what was wrong because by then everyone sort of had a sense that he was going to die because he just seemed to be getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And having a name for it gave us something to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it was kind of hard because I was four years old, and right. my mom was sending me off to a wonderful aunt and uncle, and, and what a gift they gave me to have me live with them for a while. I mean, that's an incredible gift that I understand now as an adult. But as a child, it was kind of like, well, first I was the only one, and then he came in and you took my family, and right. you sent me off. Right. And I was pretty upset with my brother and, and pretty angry, and, and at one point I had gone up to his crib and I said, you know, you can either get better and act like a normal brother or you can just go back to where you came from. Mm-hmm. And it would it's a really normal thing for a four-year-old to say. Right. But when he died, months later, in my memory for a long time, it was the very next day he died, mm-hmm. I thought that I had killed him. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I had said, go back to where you came from, and, and then he did. Yeah, that was really hard. Now, how uh, how did you resolve that? Did it bother you as a teenager? Does it bother you now? Um, how really, did you get resolution on that? It bothered me until I was uh, about I was in fifth. I think I was in fifth grade, and my mom wanted me to join the choir in the church, and I said, "No, I'm not going to go in the church because I think the church will fall down on me." Mm. And she said, "What are you talking about?" And at that moment, I shared with her that it was my fault that my baby brother had died and that everybody had been all upset for all these years and and that that was really my fault and I didn't think that God would appreciate me coming into his home and singing a song. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't you find that with a lot of families that you work with? Even adults, we we want to believe that they're, or we think that we have some responsibility and I think it has something to do with thinking that you can control life. Absolutely. I call it, when I work with kids, I call it magical magical thinking or magic wishes mm-hmm. and it's the idea that kids have that the world revolves around us and so if I make a wish then of course it'll come true mm-hmm. well so if I make a bad wish and then in some way it does come true then all of a sudden there's that incredible guilt and even though I had a pretty good relationship with my parents talking about a lot of things that was such a heavy and loaded topic there was no way that I was going to share that for a really long time because I was afraid that my family would suddenly be very angry with me or upset with me that that here they were very sad and, and upset that my brother had died and when in fact in my mind it was my fault. Right. And, and, what I and with adults, I think it's a little different take. For them, is if they can figure out why their child died, then it won't happen again. You know, well, they exactly can take some responsibility. It's more of a control issue. We want to be in control and, and to control all of the risk factors. Right. And if one of those risk factors is the thoughts that I have in my head, I'll control those too. Right. And yet as human beings, we all get tired or fatigued right. or upset. Allie, um, I wanted to um, tell our listeners about this amazing book you wrote when you were, what, um, started writing it when you were seven? 
Well, you know what's neat, Gloria, is I didn't know I was writing a book when I started. I was writing letters to my brother, and I would mail them when I was as young as five years old, and I put Easter seals on them because they looked like stamps, uh-huh. and I put them in the mailbox, and we had such a wonderful postman because he returned them to my mom, <laughs> and she never opened them. She just kept them in a box. And after a while, I realized that he wasn't writing back, so I quit mailing them. But I kept writing to my brother. And over time, it became kind of a journal. And around the time when I was 11, I had started. My parents moved a lot. My dad was in the Air Force also. And I'd had a really bad day at school. I had gone to school, first day of school, people had asked the question of how many brothers and sisters do you have? And I had gotten brave and said I had a brother, but he died. And by the time the day was over, the rumor had gone around that if you had a brother or a sister you didn't like much, you could go see Allie and she'd help you take care of it. <laughs> it was horrible. I went home and I told my mom I was divorcing the family and I was never going back to school and that was just it. And my mom said, well, maybe we could do something besides dropping out of school in the fifth grade. And I said, great, give me one of those books you read that help you. And we went looking, and at the time, there wasn't anything for children. There were a couple of textbooks about children, but there wasn't anything written to now, them. Now, what year would this be? Gosh, this seventy, maybe eight, early 80s. Early 80s, okay. Early 80s. And so my mom finally said, well, why don't you write a book? I think mostly because we had spent the whole day looking for something, and it was frustrating, and she wanted to give me an answer. Uh-huh. And I said, well, you know, it's funny you said that. And I brought out these letters I had been writing to my brother, and I stapled them together, and I said, here's my book. And my mom had tears streaming down her face, and she said, you know, I have some letters from you, too. And my eyes got really wide because she wasn't supposed to have any of those letters. And she pulled out the ones that were sealed with Easter seals that had never been opened. And we read them together. And together we put put it into a book. Oh, amazing. And, and it's a wonderful book. It, uh, it is called the, yeah, it's the, which one I, it is, because you've got more than one. Footsteps through grief, is that that? No, no, Am I Still a Sister? Am I Still a Sister? Because that was my question. It's my, the most charming book. Thank you. Very fresh, very sweet. Um, let's tell our listeners how to get it. Um, you, is this the one you order through uh, Bishop Lane in Louisville, Kentucky? Um, well, you can get it on the Grief Store, which is dot www.griefstore.com where it's carried through Centering Corporation. Great. Mm-hmm. And you can uh, go what on Centering Corporation on there. You can Google them too to get into it. Yes. Great. It's a wonderful book. I would highly suggest um, for any adult or children. It is so simple. It is so sweet and charming. It's, it's wonderful. And then this, um, I have the other book right here, The Other Side of Grief, which is kind of a workbook that you did with your mom. Right. And uh, it's, it's a, a really wonderful book. What, what's that? Um, is what, that for everyone, isn't it, children and sure, adults? That's for, that's for anyone, um, particularly when people are beginning to get through that first year. And the idea is that that's about the time when friends and loved ones have decided that you've had enough. Mm-hmm. And they begin to start talking about wanting to use the word closure or wanting to talk about, you know, aren't you ready to move on? And at a year, that's a really hard time for folks because they're beginning to, the permanence of death is beginning to really set in. And kind of the last thing they're ready to do is to put this on a shelf and be done with it. And so the book is a workbook, which is kind of a journaling piece, that kind of talks about how you can create rituals to remember your loved one 
and how instead of saying goodbye to them, you begin to work their memory and their legacy into your everyday life. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some of these memory symbols. Now, we're talking about grief through the life cycle. Um, with the memory symbols, what are some of the things Austin died uh, how many years ago? 29 years ago. 29 years ago. So what are some of the uh, memory symbols that you have? Tell our audience what they are and, and how you've uh, taken your grief through. Sure. Well, I have a teddy bear of his, and um, it's, it's a music box bear that we used to play for him. And I wanted to put it in his casket when he was buried, but my mom was so wonderful. She said, you know, when that goes in the ground, it's not coming back. And so we put in a pink elephant instead. And I got to keep the music bear, and I keep that in a safe place. And you know what's been really neat, Gloria, is that now I have a daughter who's been born since the time that my brother was alive. Of course, I didn't have a child when I was four. And I can bring that out, and I can show her his pictures, and I can introduce her to the uncle that she won't meet. Right, those wonderful pictures and stories. And, and I can show her the teddy bear, and she can hug it, and she can say, I wish I had met you. Mm-hmm. And what a neat thing. Because as an adult who was a grieving child, one of the challenges is to figure out how do you introduce new people in your life to the loved one who is still a part of your life. And so keeping that link going I, is an important important thing. What, what about, you talk in the book a little bit about a pain link. Uh, do you see adults carrying their pain from their childhood loss? And I, what would you suggest to them? I do. What, what begins to happen is, is a layering of losses. And sometimes it doesn't even come up. An an adult may not even realize what's going on until another loss happens in their lives. And then all of a sudden it it takes them back in time. It's like being on a a time capsule. And you go right back to that original loss during childhood. And what happens is that it all kind of comes back together because even though we cope with it, it still is a piece of you. Mm -hmm. And so an important thing for adults to do is to go ahead and recognize that that's what's going on. Sometimes... We beat ourselves up and say, am I going crazy? And so to say, okay, I know what this is and acknowledge the pain and then begin to find ways to work the legacy of the first loss into our lives Mm -hmm. and to use some of the strength that we gathered in coping with the death of the first loved one to deal with the next loss. Yes, uh, there's some unresolved grief issues. If you're feeling really fresh and um, strong pain, connected with the death of someone, um, you know, years ago, maybe six or seven years ago related to a new death, you really need to come and uh, take a look, maybe tell your story some more, maybe even get some professional help in looking at your stories. I wanted to uh, read you an email we've got from Wendy from Detroit, Michigan. Um, she said, Wendy says, I saw that you were going to have a show on grief through the life cycle. My brother died when I was 11 I now have two little boys, and I am super paranoid about having children die. I really think that it probably doesn't even cross other people's minds. Do you have this problem, and what would you suggest? That's a wonderful question, Wendy, and and I do have this problem because um, my brother died as an infant, and so I would wake my child up just to make sure she was still breathing during the first year of her life. And what happens is, as children, we have this belief that somehow everything's going to be okay. And when someone dies during our childhood, we lose that innocence, mm-hmm. that sense that that bad things don't happen to our family. That you're not invincible. Exactly. And, you know, as children, we look at our parents as these incredible superheroes who can protect us from everything. And when a sibling dies, we see that they are human 
and that they couldn't stop this from happening and that neither could we. Mm-hmm. And so when you go on into adulthood, you carry that. It's almost a mistrust a little bit and say, you know, if something could happen to my brother or sister, maybe something could happen to my child. Could this happen to us? It becomes a realistic thing, doesn't it? It does. Uh, where with most children, they haven't gone to that level yet. They've had maybe grandparents die, but that was kind of in the order of things. They were old. Exactly. And then as adults who who were grieving children, we feel a responsibility to try to take care of every contingency, every possible thing that could happen. And so, you know, everyone else has a car seat and they put the kid in it. You're the one going and making sure that you've taken the class and had the person put the car seat in. And by the way, maybe I shouldn't be the one to strap it into the car because I'm not sure I can do it exactly right. Mm-hmm. And so taking the extra steps. And it's really important for for those of us who are in that situation of wanting to overprotect, to step back and to say, you know, I can't control every single variable. I can't control everything. But what I can do is if I hold on too tight, if I smother my kids, I might send them away from me. Mm-hmm. They might want to put distance between me and them because they don't understand what's going on with me. And so what, what you have to do is decide what variables you can be in charge of, what things you can take care of, and then begin to, over time, little by little, let go of the other stuff. Right. Let go of the extra stuff because we can't create children who are wrapped in bubble wrap because eventually they'll break out of that bubble wrap and they'll say, you know, I'm, I don't need protecting, and they might do some kind of not very smart things. And I think what one of the things that Wendy has to realize is really not about her child, it's about her. Right. You know, the thoughts are in her mind, so she can uh, do something about them. It Lorca. also helps once the child passes the age that the sibling was. Ah, uh, good. I wanted to read you it's sort of an email, but it's from my daughter, Heidi. Um, uh, Heidi was not able to call in because she's teaching a class at Columbia right now, but she said, I, um, Hi, Allie, I would like to have called in. Uh, you and I have a lot in common. We both have mothers who are involved with writing and teaching about grief and loss, and we both have had our brothers die. I, too, our only brothers die. I, too, have followed a career path impacted by Scott's death and have gone into psychology specializing in sibling loss. Uh, Another thing we have in common is that we both have only one child. And I wanted to ask Allie if she thinks that it's related to her brother's death. I've thought about it for myself, and I'm not sure. Sure. That's a great question. Um, You know, in our family, that actually came up in, in a huge way, and I didn't realize it was about my brother's death right at first. Um, we had one child, and that was everybody was okay with that. But um, I married the son of someone who had died in childhood. My husband's father died when he mm-hmm. was nine. And my husband was saying, well, I think we should just have one. One is fine. Everything's good. And I was saying, well, I want to have more than one. And when we really sat down and talked about it, He grew up in a family with a mom who had these children and no husband to help her raise them. And he wanted to, if he left me as a young widow, to make sure that I only had one child to take care of and I wouldn't be overloaded. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to stack the deck. Mm -hmm. I wanted more than one child because what if something happened to our child? Yeah, that sounds kind of like like something I would have thought. But as, as Heidi said, it's, it's interesting that you both just have one. What, so you, what did you decide then? What we ended up deciding was that um, what worked best with our family as far as the time and the resources and the things that we had is that we, we really would do very well with one child to spend our energy and our resources on. 
and that having another child just in case wasn't a good enough reason to have mm. a child. To to have a child just in case one of them died to make sure there would be one left wasn't a good enough reason to stretch our resources beyond what our means could handle. And so we decided to have one child. Mm-hmm. And, um, and like uh, said, now before, do you think uh, what comes up for me a little bit thinking about this is uh, having siblings die, I know Heidi and I think you have a great passion for your work and is part of it, want, it wanting to have the time to give to your child but also to be able to give to the world? I think so because it's such a passion for me to do this work and to get the word out about grieving siblings and about not just children but children as they grow up and, and making sure that people have the information um, to cope and to realize that they're not alone. And yet, you're right, I don't want to rob my child of the time and the resources that, that she deserves as, as a young person growing up. And um, I feel like she's sharing me enough with all of the kids that I work with and I didn't know how we could handle having her share then with a sibling too. Now, could you talk a little bit about, I know some people, I've been a, I was a therapist before my son was killed, um, and, uh, but I know some people have thoughts about, well, you shouldn't go into this, you know, you shouldn't specialize in this because it's too closer. And I know your mother went into the field, and uh, you've gone in the field since Austin's death. Do you have any thoughts about that? I, I myself, well, I can give you my own thought after you give me yours. Sure. Well, one thing, um, just because it brings a little bit up and I want to touch base on it, is that um, I really don't know what I was going to be before my brother died because I was four. And so that really touches base into childhood bereavement where adults have had a career and they were going on a path and then something catastrophic happens and they have to reevaluate. Children were trying to figure out who they were in the first place. And so I don't know that I wouldn't, wouldn't have become a therapist anyway. I probably wouldn't have become a grief counselor. Mm. Um, but then the other piece is that I think it's really important for a therapist to have done their own grief work. Mm-hmm. That when I'm working with families, I'm working with their issues. And I've, I'm at far enough down the path and I've done enough work that I'm able to be there in their place where they are to help them on their issues. And it doesn't have to be about unresolved grief issues that I have. Mm-hmm. But the other piece is I really believe that families connect a little bit better with someone who's been on the path, Mm -hmm. that it's one thing to read about it and to study about it in books and to do research, and it's another thing to have been there questioning your sanity and going to the refrigerator and not remembering why you were going there. It's another thing to have been on the path, and so I think in a way that actually makes it easier to connect with a therapist who's been there. Well, uh, when you look at a therapist who's had the experience you've had and they're sitting up and talking and, and living a life, and um, it, it's, it's inspirational, I believe, just it gives that they're there. Absolutely, because it says, wow, you know, you're still breathing. Maybe I can be, too. Uh-huh. And uh, as you, you just said, it gives hope, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Hope is a wonderful thing, and uh, particularly in this field. Well, uh, one of the things that I'm very interested in, and I've heard your mom and you talk about it, is um, the idea that I didn't get a chance to say goodbye years later. Absolutely. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. A lot of people get stuck in the moment, in the very last moment of their loved one's death. And they say, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye, and, and that's my sticking point in my grief. 
And one of the things, because my brother had a long-term illness, is we did get a chance to say goodbye. We knew that he was dying. We didn't know what day he would be dying, but we knew that it was coming. And our family could have had that moment standing around in a circle and, and saying goodbye. But what we said instead was, I love you. Mm-hmm. And I think when when you don't get that chance to say goodbye, whether it's been a, a car accident or a traumatic thing or even an illness that happened so quickly and it caught you by surprise, if you didn't have that opportunity, then you don't know that you probably would have said, I love you instead and not, of goodbye. And not goodbye, yeah, that's a and, lovely thought. And so what I what I want folks who are in that place of saying I didn't get to say goodbye to hear and to take with them is that we said I love you. Mm-hmm. And I know that in the time of the lifetime of your loved one you said I love you to them. Mm-hmm. And that that's the peace that carries on because when we get caught in that last moment of their life, then we cheat ourselves out of all the other moments of their life. Mm-hmm. Our lives are made up of so many moments, not just the last one. Yes, and um I, you can't, if you are feeling that you didn't get a chance to say goodbye, you may want to create a ritual around that and and say goodbye to them. You may, one of the things I suggest to people is that if they really need to say that goodbye, they could uh, write a letter and uh, have other people write letters and poems. You can do it um, on a special event if you want to or on any day. And then you burn the letters and make a mulch out of them and then plant a rose tree and say Wonderful. goodbye. Wonderful. Or if you have young children at home, you can send a balloon. Mm-hmm. And you know what? When you take the moment to say goodbye, take the moment to say I love you too. Exactly. Very the other piece that, that's really good for, particularly when you're talking through the lifetime, because we know that it's it's not goodbye. These these memories and these feelings, they catch us by surprise. We were talking about that early on in the show. Is finding the legacy of your loved one, finding the things that they taught you, finding the wonderful things that they put into your life, whether that's teaching you how to cook or just your sense of humor or something like that, finding that piece in their, in your life. And when you cook something special, you remember, you say, I'm doing this in honor of my child or in honor of my brother or sister. When my husband and I got married, we didn't want our wedding to be all about all the people who had died in our lives, and yet we wanted to take a moment to acknowledge them. And so the men had white roses on their boutonnieres, and my brother's music there was sitting up in the front pew. No big deal. Nobody saw it except us and, and the preacher at the front. Mm-hmm. But it was just a way to acknowledge them and include them in our lives. And to create a ritual for and that. Exactly. So that they were there and we weren't saying goodbye. We were saying, you would be here at our wedding. So why shouldn't you be there at our wedding today? And yet the wedding still needed to be about us exchanging vows. And it didn't need to be overpowered by the death of our loved ones. It was just a way to have them also be guests. And what about anger that you feel? Uh, I see anger as a strong connect for adults who've had loss early on. Maintaining anger, say, at your parents for sending you away or, you know, uh, the anger um, at different people who said the wrong thing to you or that we carry on for years. Sure. Well, one of the things about anger is it's a very strong and powerful emotion and sometimes we're more comfortable being stuck in anger than feeling helpless or even feeling guilty. And so we get to anger because it, it feels powerful. It's If I can be angry with you, then maybe I don't have to look at some of the other things. And so it's really important to take that anger out and to work it and to work through it because when we stuff anger down, it grows. It's 
it's kind of like a, a cancer that it doesn't go away if you ignore it. It begins to grow and it, and it gets bigger. And the thing about anger is that if we don't listen to anger, then it will find other ways to be heard. And, and unfortunately, there are a lot of events that a person could point to where um, people didn't feel like they were heard or they didn't express their grief of what was going on, and so they found kind of a violent, splashy way to be heard. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the extreme of what happens if we don't listen to anger. But if we give anger a voice, if we take the time to say, you know, I am really angry about this, and I need to punch a pillow or I need to go out and throw some garage sale china up against the wall so I can get the anger out. Mm-hmm. Or if there's someone that that you have the anger towards, taking the time to sit down and write a letter and really spell out the things that you're feeling angry about can be very helpful. You don't even need to send it. It's just the writing Great. of it that's important. Let's take a call uh, from Jeff from Louisville. Jeff, are you there? Yes, I am. Welcome to Healing the Grieving Heart. Thanks for calling in. Did you have a question for Allie or myself? Thank you. I have a question for Allie. I married a woman whose sister died when she was 12, and you guys talked a little bit earlier about some of the overprotectiveness. This is really getting troublesome in our lives. Allie, do you have any advice for me so that I can understand what she's going through a little bit better? The... How old were? How old was the sibling when the sibling died? Do you know? The sibling I uh, was ten. And and you said you have kids. How old are the kids? I have uh, three kids, ten, eight, and six. Okay. Part of what what happens with a brief sibling is that um, there's this feeling that they can't trust the world. We talked about that earlier a little bit on the show, and that. Um, the world, instead of being this safe place where everything works out okay, it can be still kind of like a dangerous place. And what your wife may be doing is trying to prevent one of your children from dying at the same age that her sibling died. Yeah, exactly, that 10-year-old age. And plus, 10-year-olds are kind of moving out a little bit, too. Well, and, and the, the problem for kids is the more the tighter you hold them, the more they want to kind of break away and show their own independence. Mm-hmm. And so that may actually be making your wife feel a little more panicked because the control thing isn't working anymore. And it sounds like it, it may be time to sit down and have a talk about, you know, we can't control everything and, um, you know, maybe we need to get a little extra help on this. Yeah, and, and also telling your wife that she's a great mom, she's doing a great job and, you know, giving her support in that because she's probably feeling pretty shaky right now. Sure, and letting her know that that you're with her and that and that you understand where she's coming from. You can't say I understand you, but that you know it is scary being a parent. Mm-hmm. And you also um, might consider, as Ali said, professional help or a support group where she can talk with other parents who um, are going through something similar, or other siblings, grown-up siblings who are going through this. Unfortunately, a lot of grown-up siblings experience the sense of wanting to try to be in control of the whole world and prevent something from happening. And you might also have her tune into some of the shows. We've done some shows on adult siblings and um, on have siblings on the show that might be helpful for her to hear. Okay, so sounds like what I need to do is at least get her to try and listen to some of your shows and, you know, have a talk. You're a great mom, and I support you, and I'm just having a hard time kind of understanding where she's at. But. Yeah, well, it's she's very lucky to have a guy like you that she's married to that uh, is sensitive, sees it, can hear, and uh, I'm sure you uh, would be a great support to her. 
Absolutely. It, it wouldn't be a bad idea to have a family meeting, too, and say, you know, it's because mom and dad love you so much that they're trying to keep you safe. So um, to maybe help the kids understand a little bit that it's not that mom's being mean to them or trying to, to keep them from doing fun stuff. It's that she's trying to keep them safe. Yeah, one of the things that I think, too, is that we can put grief, this great big hole, everything goes into, everything's responsible for this grief thing. Well, some of it's probably some normal family issues going on here, too. Mm-hmm. So, Thank you. Well, thanks a lot for calling in. Thanks. Yeah, very interesting how uh, I see with uh, adults, particularly where there's been an automobile accident, it's so generic. They don't want their kids to drive. You know, right. they don't want them to take driver's ed. <laughs> Yeah, it, it generalizes out into to all the the possible things that could happen that have something to do with a car. Right, exactly. Or I'm sure uh, with swimming, if someone was killed in that kind of an accident or, you know, whatever kind of thing went on. I know my uh, cousin's uh, child had Hodgkinson's disease and a tumor, you know, cancer early. And uh, she, you know, is constantly looking for bumps on her kids and uh, that kind of thing. Absolutely, and and there really is something to be said about passing the milestone of the age when the person died because it's almost like you're afraid that history will repeat itself. Mm-hmm. And so when you pass over the age, it doesn't mean that it completely melts away, but it it just goes into a safer place. It's like, oh, okay, we passed over that. Not so you were really concerned when your little girl was four? Do you remember um, that? Well, my brother died in his first year of life, so the first Oh, I'm sorry, year, you were four. Right. Yeah, he was his first. first. Her first year of life was just a very scary time for me. So you were and really there. Really watching. watching over. I mean, we probably went to the pediatrician twice as often as anybody else because my brother died of a disease where he didn't grow enough, mm-hmm. and my daughter was a low birth weight. So when she wasn't growing as much as I thought she should, then, you know, we're over at the doctor going, are you sure it's not a brain tumor? Is everything okay? And you're sure, 100% sure that she's fine. And luckily I was able to explain to the pediatrician what was going on, and he just, you know, instead of rolling his eyes at me, which would have made it worse. Yeah, well, that's a great idea. If you do have younger kids, you might want to talk to your pediatrician about your child's, uh, your sibling's death years ago. Right, because if we feel that someone's not listening to us, then we feel that we have to talk more and more and more about it or louder. Right. And the fear gets bigger, not smaller. So if someone can listen and acknowledge, then the fear can begin to dissipate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe sometimes taking a look at why uh, do I feel nervous about something? You know, how could this be back and related? Sure. You know, is this because I'm really worried about my kids or is this because I'm thinking about my sibling dying and, and that I don't trust the world? So if you could give one piece of advice to uh, someone who, say, is um, under 10 regarding the death of the sibling, what would it be? What I would say to someone, did you say under 10? Uh-huh. Is take the time to do your own grieving. Lots of people ask little kids, how are your parents doing? You know, how's everybody else doing? Make sure that you know you have permission to do your own grief. But then the other thing that's really important is you don't have to become your sibling. You don't have to do all the things that they used to do or take on their goals. You are yourself. Mm -hmm. And you will always remember your sibling. They will always be a part of you. But a really important thing is to go on and and do what you want to do. Find your interest. And if you can work in something about your sibling in that, then great. What what about advice for somebody over 10? 
what I would say for someone over 10 is to remember and to just understand that this is part of the life, this is part of your life now. It is forever woven in the fabric of who you are. It will change the way you look at things. And so when you're in a moment when you're saying, how come I look at this so differently than everyone else? Step back and remember that you've had a life-changing event in your childhood. And so it doesn't have to be a bad life-changing event. It doesn't mean that your life is now going to take a turn for the worse. But it does mean that it's going to change the way you look at things. And so keep that and in mind. And maybe you might even be more empathetic and more understanding of life than Absolutely. a lot of your friends. And a lot of teens tell me that they feel more mature or that they feel, you know, that they're not in touch with their friends who have real frivolous concerns like a broken nail or, or not having the right clothes or something. And they say, gosh, I don't, I don't know if I really fit in. And yet they're the people who everyone comes and talks to. They end up being the peer counselors in school. Mm-hmm. Because what it means is that you can listen to someone else, and you're not afraid. You know, you're not avoiding what the negatives in life. You've been there, and and you've made it. Allie, uh, what about adults? What would you say to them who, uh, through the life cycle, who've had a, a sibling die when they were younger, and and now, or uh, you know, had a, a profound loss at a younger age? What would you say to them now? Sure, a couple of things. And one is, go ahead and acknowledge that when milestones happen. This is going to come up. That way, at least you won't be caught by surprise. And maybe you can plan a ritual for it, like at our wedding with the with the flowers, or just knowing that the birth of a new child would be something your sibling would be there for, or this person would be there for. And so taking a moment to acknowledge them, it, it allows you the opportunity to do the grief work that you still need to do. And the other piece is that it's it's okay to introduce the concept of your loved one to new people in your life, but we need to be careful not to make them the focus. Well, Allie, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. It's uh, time for us to close. It's been a fantastic show, and I know that you have helped so many people and continue through your work. And uh, I would suggest that people uh, go to your website. We want to give us that again quickly. Um, www.widowedinformation.org. Or www.griefstore.com. Okay, and I suggest that you get Allie's book. She's a fantastic person. And thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, it's time to close. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.